sometimes as much as 50% of the testing we did on seafood in, in sushi restaurants turned out not to be the species you ordered from the menu. <laughs> so you're right. getting ripped off So and this singing. is the issue of seafood fraud. Hello, I'm Ed Begley Jr. I'm willing to do anything to help the planet. I think getting a LEED Platinum certification is better than getting a winning lottery ticket. I think my family showers should be timed, and I love my wife. I'm Rochelle Carson Begley, and at least my showers are shorter than the time it takes to actually heat up the water. And I love Ed. This week, we talked to Keith Addis, our friend in Oceana's president of the board of directors, and he tells us all about the oceans and how to protect them. Welcome back to another episode of Begley Ask. Thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting the shows by subscribing, downloading episodes, sharing the podcast. We truly, truly appreciate it. And we love that you're telling us about the green things you've been up to lately, since today's guest is a very important member of one of our favorite organizations, Oceana. We've asked how you're helping to clean the oceans, reduce single-use plastic, and help the natural life on our beloved planet. New York farmer tweeted that she is keeping several hundred acres of farmland habitats open in the face of sprawl. Wow, that is amazing. Thank you, New York farmer. And Shauna posted a picture of her reusable coffee filter and said, I have used this almost every single day for over two years in my off-brand K-cup French press. Gosh, two years is a long time. Good job, Shauna. So if you have something to share with us, tweet us at Begley Ask. Follow us on Facebook or email us at begleyask at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're very excited to have my dear friend Keith Addis joining us today. Keith Addis has been around the entertainment industry his whole life, and he got started as a very young man managing different people, and he managed musical acts at first, and then he segued on to doing a lot of actors and actresses and top talent. I don't want to be so indiscreet as to give his client list over many decades, but some of the top people who are working and have worked in the entertainment industry. He also happens to be my manager, and his wonderful management company is called Industry Entertainment. But he's a longtime environmental activist and the board of directors and president of the fantastic group Oceana. I remember when I served with you when it was called American Oceans Campaign. That's true. We served on that board together, and I believe you were chair of that board, too. I was on the board. This was an organization, of course, founded by the intrepid Ted Danson. My dear friend who I love. Great man. In the face of the looming possibility of oil drilling and those unsightly (laughs) terrible oil drilling platforms in the middle of the Santa Monica Bay. 88, wasn't it, that they were planning to do that? Yeah. And Zev Yoslowski came to me and a few other people came to me and said, we got to stop this. It's true. And then you guys got involved and it stopped. Ted before me. Uh, Ted started this organization and was its primary funder for quite some time. These were during the halcyon days of Cheers. Ah, yes. And he had the wherewithal to do that, which is heroic and great. Yes. And I had recently become his manager. And though I had frankly, no interest in ocean issues at all, though I grew up near the beach and loved the ocean, I thought on a sort of Machiavellian level that I should ingratiate myself with my important new client and join this fledgling organization. And it only took me a very short period of time to become completely uh, involved and uh, obsessed with the issues. And I've been doing it with him and you and other friends of ours ever since. We get so much from the ocean, so much oxygen, so much food, so much of everything. All life. All life, you're Wait right. Wait a minute, Let's can we back honest. up? All you life. You mean they were going to drill in the Santa Monica Bay? Yes. Yes. 
You mean like they did up off, off Santa Barbara? You would have had big oil derricks. Right there in the Santa the beach, Monica Bay. From Malibu, from the wow. colony, from all those great beaches, you would have been looking out at oil derricks. Yikes. And what year was that? 88 was when I was summoned into the office of Zev Yaroslavsky and the other city council member. They summoned me there and said, look, we've got to stop this and you've got to help us. Then I heard Ted was involved and uh, heard about American Oceans campaign and I was very generously asked to be on that board. I was very grateful to serve on that board and, and then it became Oceana. How did it I, become Oceana? Well, the truth is American Oceans campaign was struggling financially to survive. Fortunately, unbeknownst to that, the Pew Foundation had committed to put up $40 million over a 10-year period to fund an organization that was intended to be the first ever international NGO exclusively devoted to ocean issues. And they decided to call it Oceana, and not knowing that we were gasping for air at American Oceans Campaign, they reached out to us and asked if we were interested in merging with them oh. to become the West Coast partner of Oceana. What a good move on their part turned and out, on yours. It turned out to be a win-win for both. Yeah, that's really wonderful because look at what you've done in these years since. Gillnetting, purse-saining, bottom, what do you call it? Bottom trawling. Bottom trawling, uh, shark finning. You've been involved in so many issues as regards the ocean and you've had many, many victories that I recall. Well, this is true. For me... For the first 10 years of this hard, important work, I would honestly have to say that I believe that the victories were symbolic and valuable. Symbolic victories are valuable. They teach people about problems they otherwise wouldn't have known about. They teach people about solutions they didn't otherwise think were possible. But it was growing increasingly frustrating for me and others doing this hard work that the victories were only symbolic because the problems are infinitely more important and looming incredibly dangerous. And only a couple of years ago did I realize for the first time that in my lifetime I would see that the changes are much more than symbolic and that there's hope. Uh, and I didn't think there would be. I thought we were holding this wall from crumbling and trying to prevent total disaster as long as possible, but at the end of the day, none of these problems could really be solved in my lifetime or thereafter, but I feel completely differently now. What, what gives you hope? Yeah, what changed you? <laughs> Through trial and error and fumbling around, mm -hmm. we discovered that relatively simple policies can preserve and protect fisheries around the world where there are countries sympathetic to those goals. And while showing those countries and their fishing industries that not only are those policies in the best interest of people who love seafood and people who love the oceans and people who are environmentalists, but in the interests of the fishing industry as well and the economies of these countries, some very large and developed, others very small and developing countries, a formula began to evolve very simply where if a country becomes committed with their industry to not overfishing these incredible resources, not taking out more than the fishery can reasonably sustain and replace. If you do that, if you don't destroy the habitat that the young fish need to develop and grow to create that sustainability, and if you don't kill all kinds of other beautiful species in the process of harvesting a particular one, 
fisheries can quickly be restored. Isn't it amazing some of the recovery that has occurred in places where I didn't think it the would The most amusing so is Somalia. And it's a fabulous case study. The Somalian fisheries were collapsing completely from overfishing, from industrial fishing, illegally fishing in Somalian waters, until the Somalian pirates appeared, discouraging all kinds of shipping in those areas. Oh and God. in three short years, wow. the fisheries of Somalia have completely recovered, or recovered in an incredibly substantial way. So other countries need pirates, is that other what you're co- Other countries need virtual <laughs> virtual pirates. <laughs> yes. That's right. right. But, but you don't need to stop fishing. You just need to be cautious and careful and reasonable. Right. They um, had so harvested so many important fish, the cod and the haddock and the flounder and George's Bank and Grand Bank's fisheries. They were just dead as far as larger fish. And I hear that's recovered a bit too. Probably the most historically significant fishery collapse is the North Atlantic cod right. collapse because it was fished almost to extinction. It is making it, it is at the bottom of a curve in terms of its biomass. But the fascinating thing about that curve for the very first time is that curve has reached a bottom and is on the increase. Amazing. So, they so there's, hope, there. there's hope for that fishery. But it's, again, indicative of what can happen when intelligent people think reasonably about how to manage a resource, a resource that's not owned by the fishing industry. It's owned by the people in those right. countries that control those waters. It's part of the commons. It's something we all own. Right. But what, what's happening with the coral reefs? Lots of things are happening to coral reefs. I've just seen some pretty terrifying reports about expectations of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, I heard, yes. which is bleaching at an incredibly uh, fast rate, much faster than was predicted it would happen. And there's a whole constellation of reasons we believe that coral reefs are in danger. Climate change mm-hmm. is causing the waters to be warmer. These are animals reacting to right. radical habitat changes. The chemistry of the ocean is changing. I, I've struggled for years to figure out how to talk to people about acidification, which sounds so wonky. Right. Until I realized that when I was seven or eight at Hesby Street School, not far from here. Oh boy, <laughs> I know Hesby Street School. We did an experiment, I remember clearly, where they asked kids to bring in baby teeth, and they dropped baby teeth in glasses of Coca-Cola. And we discovered, and that was the intent of this lesson, that four or five or six days later, that tooth was completely dissolved and gone. But I remember those lessons having been erroneously cautionary tales about sugar, about why kids, particularly us, the students at Hesby Street School, should be careful about sugar and tooth decay, when in fact, the sugar had almost nothing to do with the decay of the teeth. Really? It was the carbonation of the water. That's what acidification is. Right. It's 22 million metric tons a day, staggering amount, metric tons uh-huh. of CO2 and methane coming out of the atmosphere being dissolved in the ocean because a third of everything that goes up comes down and is dissolved into the ocean. And to think that you could add 22 million metric tons a day without it eventually starting to change the pH of the ocean is moronic. And again, anybody who's ever had a saltwater fish tank knows that you have to have professionals with sophisticated Mm -hmm. chemical tests to maintain a balance in that home aquarium or 
everything dies. The second it goes out of balance, everything dies. So we've been messing with these balances and it's time to understand that these ramifications are serious and important and we need to do everything we can to slow this down. And we, the human species, are like these fish in an aquarium that are, we've been nibbling at the controls without any real idea of the consequences. And now we see with climate change and acidification and the amount of plastics and microbeads and everything that's in the ocean, the bleaching of the coral reefs, we see some of the havoc we're creating. And I hope we can make changes in time. Now, I also, I mean, this is the change of the pH of the ocean, but I heard sunscreens are attributing to coral reefs bleaching sunscreens. I have read also that there are chemicals in certain sunscreens which are damaging right. to the pH balance and other chemical balances in the ocean. I, but I can't tell you to what extent right. that's a substantial uh-huh. cause of so what's the majority, So it's mainly the CO2 and methane. That's- and, and all the other junk yeah. that completely mindlessly gets thrown into the ocean as if it's this bottomless right. pit. I remember when years ago we were first trying to illuminate this issue of bottom trawling, this horrible practice of bottom trawling. And one of the ways it was pictured was imagine you were looking for one kind of ant, you wanted to catch one kind of antelope on the Maasai Mara. So you dragged nets over the entire Maasai Mara and killed everything in your path in the process of trying to capture a particular kind of antelope. That's what Crazy. bottom trawling right. is. That's what it is. And it destroys, it? not only does it kill everything indiscriminately, it destroys the bottom. So one wise cracker at an event I was at confronted me and said, but come on, nature takes care of itself. It repairs damage itself. And to a large extent, that's true. And I did some research and went to some of our in-house marine biologists and other subject matter experts. And the consensus was, that guy is right. The ocean bottom will repair itself probably in around 115,000 years. Oh, really? Right. To replace the damage <laughs> done Lord. by bottom trawling. Right. So I was wrong. Right, right, right. right. In right. a mere 115,000 years, all that damage will the be. The scope Holy. of these things but is also, so extraordinary. You know, we had the pleasure of going to Southeast Asia, you and I and Ed, last year on this incredible tour. Uh, a birthday with, trip yeah. with Paul Allen. Uh, what's it called? A cruise. That's the word. The cruise. And to witness the amount of plastic in the ocean was, I have pictures, and among pictures, every port we pulled into was just filled with plastic. And not just the oceans, the rivers. The, oh, every waterway, everything. A little had stream, tons a big one, a river, a, but, a bay, an estuary. But to imagine those fish that they're eating. Those fish are eating that plastic, and they're feeding those people that food. And of equivalent danger, not just ingesting the plastic that's bad for the people, but it's killing the fish and killing the birds and killing the marine mammals right. and all the other creatures. They think it's jellyfish, and they eat it, and it's, it's a big problem. And the terrifying thing about plastic, I mean, on the, on the one hand, it was this amazing invention. Its durability is unbelievable. But on the other hand, every single piece of plastic ever created is still here. That's right. It's in the soil, it's Mm. in the ground, it's in the ocean, it's indestructible. Uh, It can be burned, releasing incredibly complicated toxic chemicals, but other than burning it, which is a bad idea, it is indestructible. Right, dioxins and furans. And there is no technology that has, at the moment, any chance of cleaning the plastic waste in the rivers and estuaries and ocean. There is no such thing. We've looked at it at Oceana carefully, and so... Really, as is the case with many other environmental 
crises, the issue is mitigation. How right. do you stop there being more plastic than is already there from entering these ecosystems? And that's what we're focusing on. How do you stem the tide? How do you hold it back well, it well, is, and prevent I, the problem from getting to a point where... I think this is a good use for plastic. These glasses I'm holding in my hand and on my computer, I'm quite fond of it and other things like that and probably your cell phone. But I think other than that, that single-use plastic, plastic is something I think we can all do without. I don't need a plastic bag when I buy a pack of gum or a greeting card or anything else. A week's worth of groceries, I don't need a plastic bag. Right. I bring my canvas bags. It's that single-use plastic that's our undoing. And I think that's what we need to begin. Well, the genie is out of the bag. The, I mean, that, literally. Addressing it. Yeah, but it is, we are a plastic-addicted culture. I mean, it is no question. The whole world yeah. is a plastic addicted culture exactly yeah and the bottle the bottling business the soft drink business is a huge contributor to that problem but packaging in general has to change uh, and we have to stop just dumping it in the ocean that would be a good start right that'd there. that'd be a real good start i just uh, have been wrangling all of the challenging waste products old cell phones old computers light bulbs etc because our corner grocery store has a collection of those challenging recycled materials every month and we go out of our way to collect all that stuff so that it can be responsibly recycled so one of the things that people who are listening can and should do is help organize yes these collection opportunities in their neighborhood it's simple it doesn't cost anything mm -hmm. the people who collect it make money on responsibly recycling some of these toxic uh, ingredients and chemicals, and uh, that's a way that people can be immediately effective. That's the, the truth. You can do so much yourself. You can make such a difference. Marina came by, our friend Marina came by with a bag of batteries just yesterday because she knows I take them in once a month or so. I go into the hazardous waste drop-off and, and drop the stuff off. So that's something you can do. You can eliminate the single-use plastics from your life. You can eat the kinds of seafood that are more sustainable. And these guides are available at Oceana.org, are they not? Yes, Different they are. seafood guides of things that you can eat. But that what are do you do about the seafood that has mercury and all the other toxins? Well, that's all fact. If you're a, a, a girl, yes. you don't need any of it at all. Oh, darn. If you intend to have children, I mean, there are guidelines that, that, that suggest that a very small amount of those high mercury containing fish, a, a very small amount can be tolerated by a a young girl, a woman intending to have children. My opinion is that that should be avoided completely. Right. Because that mercury bioaccumulates in your body forever. Forever. And so a dose that would be completely, relatively harmless to you, Ed, and relatively harmless mm -hmm. to you, passed absorbed by a three-year-old girl in, in relation to her body mass right. is a huge dose. Mm. And if she starts accumulating, he or she starts accumulating that amount of mercury as a child, you can imagine how much more serious that problem becomes over a lifetime. Right. And we also want to avoid those fish because those fish also tend to be uh, endangered fish, bluefin tuna, because they should live to be 65 years old. Really? They're yeah. Wow. They are the lions of the sea. They're incredibly beautiful fish. They're unbelievably fast. Unfortunately, they're incredibly delicious. And, you know, we at Oceana always want to make it clear we're seafood lovers. This is not the pita of the seafood world. <laughs> that's, and I'm not knocking them. That's right. not who we are. Right. We're trying to ensure that there's high-quality wild protein available as a food source for the next 100 years no matter what. That's our mantra now. Monterey Bay Aquarium is the gatekeeper for all of it, and they grade each 
seafood about its mercury content and about its sustainability. It's the encyclopedia that's used by all the NGOs. There's a little card that many people there carry are, around. There are species of tuna that have a lot less mercury in them. It's a lot less. They're the ones that don't live as long as bluefin. That's, you know, a full bluefin tuna can go for $325,000. No. That's Holy crazy. moly. Yeah. I won't be eating but that one. I thought five years ago, based on the graphs, these crashing graphs of Mediterranean bluefin tuna, they were gone. In fact, the Mitsubishi company stockpiled 12 years of bluefin tuna in deep freeze because they also believed that it was over and they were cornering the market on frozen tuna. We're seeing that curve come back up. Not to a place where you can go whoopee, and that has nothing to do with the mercury, but in terms of the survival of the species, there's a first uptick from the very bottom of the graph on bluefin we'll tuna. It. Yeah, we'll take it. We're going to have a link to the fish that are more acceptable to eat, the more sustainable fish and the level of mercury in them and the, uh, the many different criteria that are involved in picking the right kind of seafood. And it'll be posted on uh, begleyesk.com. Do you have an opinion of salmon? Uh, I eat salmon, wild salmon, uh, almost every day. I've replaced my favorite lifetime tuna fish sandwiches with canned wild salmon. And frankly, it's better tasting. It's in- environmentally much more responsible. It's much oilier, so it's... Omega. It's and, better. Yeah. T- it's better on every level, right. and I love it. And so we're all for wild salmon, which is still, a, in particularly the United States and Canada, a very responsibly managed fishery. We're still very circumspect and more than very circumspect about farm salmon and uh, aquaculture in general because of all the unintended consequences right. of it. The massive amounts of Cipro and other antibiotics that are used. They to have far- to because of the contained nature of the uh, Right, the and, salmon. and the, there are all kinds of other problems related to that. Now, and they ultimately feed them fish. You're trying to... Really? It's, a re- it's a reductive fishery, right. so it takes four pounds of other fish that would right. ordinarily be caught by artisanal fishermen and local fishermen and fed to their families, it gets vacuumed up by industrial fishing fleets, turned into fish meal, fed to salmon and, and Chilean sea bass in fish farms, and then sold to expensive restaurants in America and Europe, and it's not a good thing. Doesn't sound sustainable to me. But already, more than 50% of the world's seafood supply is comes from aquaculture and so we're gonna ha- it's, you can't stop say it how, say it again how much more than 50 percent. i didn't know that i didn't either so wow. we have to do something about it and it's going to be about more responsible practices okay wow in those businesses that, that's, it's very very alarming and i always go well i'm just going to sushi just this one more time but you you i don't think the I'm other gonna... problem with sushi we discovered by testing it all over the country is that Sometimes as much as 50% of the testing we did on seafood in, in sushi restaurants turned out not to be the species you ordered from the menu. <laughs> so you're right. getting ripped off. So and this singing. is the issue of seafood fraud. Oh, they do those God. DNA tests. They, take, they right. order some sushi and then they test and they see that it's whale meat in some Holy cases. No. In the tests we did around the country in seafood counters, restaurants, sushi restaurants, there were almost no authentic samples of certain species. Really? Yeah. The seafood fraud problem is pervasive, and it's almost always a function of companies offering you a much less expensive mm-hmm. species instead of the much more valuable species you thought you were right. purchasing on the menu. 
Right, right. Otherwise, it's a function of ignorance, not knowing what they were actually buying, not knowing what they were actually serving. I'm sure, like me, you ask in restaurants whether the fish you buy, if you ever buy fish, is wild caught, where it's caught from. And when I first started asking these questions, they didn't have any idea. I find much more often now that waiters and maitre d's and restaurant owners know all these things, which is a great thing, and can talk about them. Now we just have to make sure that they're truthful. Right. So we're talking to the Congress of the United States, Uh we have been for a long time, about uh, labeling, which would trace seafood all the way back to where it got caught, so we're sure that it was caught from a sustainable fishery, it was caught legally, Um, it was packaged and stored and transferred and shipped legally, so that you really know what you're buying. That's a great plan. But you know, this part of the world we were in, in Southeast Asia, has become a terrifying place for industrial fishing because it turns out that a lot of the illegal fishing done on the, on the open seas is done completely illegally by large industrial fishing ships populated with slave labor. Whoa. I'm not talking about poorly paid labor. I'm talking about literal, slave labor. Literal slaves. Literal slaves. Uh, they're doing human trafficking as well as illegal fishing, and they're also doing drug trafficking. And there's a tremendous amount of violence associated with the nexus of all those businesses. And uh, it's a perfect example of how unprotected practices can swirl out of control. Right. You what know, I hate are... this word regulation that we hear so often mm-hmm. now. Regulation sounds like someone choking you around the <laughs> neck. Um, I don't think that's what the protections are that are intended to make these fisheries healthy and and to make the practice of fishing healthy for the workers, the men and women on these ships for months at a time doing these work. You can call them regulations. What they really are is protections. Right. And who in their right mind wouldn't think that those people and our food shouldn't be protected? What are some of the countries? And who's going to do it? Big business, probably not the right. No. No. Entity to be no. making these decisions for us. Not what countries are host to some of these operations that you're talking about? Well, it's not really about countries. It's country-less. It's on the open seas. I got you. So, uh, but, but I'm excited about this amazing new technology tool that Oceana is a partner in with a company called SkyTruth and with Google, which is now allowing us to track almost every fishing ship on the planet Earth in pretty much real time. Wow. Maybe a day and a half late we have the data about almost every fishing ship on the planet Earth. So that for the first time ever, there are eyes in the sky um, that can identify where a ship is registered, who the captain is, and can follow its path. One of the glitches early on in this process is that we're following transponders that almost all these ships have. The bad guys can turn their transponders off when they're fishing illegally, when they're fishing in marine protected areas. But we can see those patterns Right. In the reports we get from the software and direct local authorities to find out more about those ships. So he turned it off here, he turned it back on here. Right, and you, the port. and you can see if it went off as they were approaching a marine protected area and right. they appear on the other side of the marine protected area and the transponder goes on, it's hmm. circumstantial right. but pretty good idea that they were fishing in that marine protected area. So the great thing about this technology is it's the beginning. Now, how to use this tool effectively, how governments can use this tool, how civilians can use this tool, how civilians in countries where their governments aren't responsibly enforcing their own laws mm-hmm. and can demand that kind of enforcement, 
there are all kinds of ways that we will find to make this technology infinitely more valuable as time goes by. But we've started, so there, there are eyes in the sky. For good people thing. who don't know what we're talking about, this transponder number Keith is talking about, it's like the tail number of a plane. It's like the license plate on a car, you know. The, not the license plate, you could swap that it's out. It's an electronic it's like the signal. VIN. Yeah. It's an electronic it's signal that all the, all the responsible boats send so that they can be tracked and their whereabouts right. can be known. And it's a function of law in many cases. We're now using it to find the bad guys That's and to great. figure out what to do about the bad guys. Because the bad guys are stealing from all of us. Can I put a transponder number on Rochelle <laughs> just somewhere in her car? You don't want to. <laughs> no, it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. For the want. same reasons that none of us should be psychic. Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. Yeah. I remember years exactly. ago, a friend of mine, Guy Webster, a dear friend, he knew somebody who put a tape recorder in a women's bathroom at a big Hollywood party. It's a very bad he idea. He wished he had never heard that tape. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad Nobody, idea. Nobody, not, wasn't the one truth? guy there. No, nope, they don't want to It wasn't that it was truth. even about them, I don't think. It was just like no. very depressing. It's stuff you didn't want to hear. Yeah. Well, finally you heard it. God knows we've been hearing the You'd stuff. you think I would have learned something Films from and it. TV and from the horse's mouth forever. But finally you get your just desserts. Well, Keith, you know, you are... An amazing wealth of information, and I am extremely impressed. And I want to just know where you come from. You came you from L.A., right? I'm a native Californian. I grew up half in the valley, a, a mile or two from here. I was born in Sherman Oaks. Wow. I went to public school in the valley. Um, when my parents split up, my dad moved to the beach in Malibu, which was always his dream. So I, I spent weekends, every weekend in Malibu on the beach, uh, which had a lot to do with my affection for the ocean. I left when I was 17 to go to college and did that and wandered back here to go to work when I was in my early 20s. And you're, and for those who don't know, Keith is iconic in our business. He is, if you look up manager, agent, extraordinaire in the dictionary, your picture would be there. Well, you handle a lot of incredible that's talent. That's I want to just say one thing as part of this. Um, people used to ask for years who were interested in these subjects, what they could do. This was a difficult question for us at Oceana because they couldn't get out there and stop illegal fishing. They couldn't really lobby Washington for laws that were more responsible. And we were hard pressed to figure out what these interested and passionate people could do. But I have answers now, real answers, not just in addition to the common sense things people can do every day, like eat less beef, right? which no one's talked about. I'm sure you've talked about it mm -hmm. a lot on this I podcast. Mm -hmm. It's become a big topic for us, even for those of us who are carnivores, particularly for those of us are who are- Are you a car carnivore? I am a carnivore. Oh, you are- Though I live with a, a gluten-free oh. vegan. <laughs> well, so do I. Yeah, and so, but now I eat beef maybe once a month. Right. She's about the same. Once, yeah, a month. once a month. And I love it and would eat it every night of my life right. were it not for the fact that I know that the business of raising cattle is one of the most damaging environmental businesses on the planet Earth. Right. Um, not only because of the deforestation it causes to create grazing land, but because of the methane they produce. Coming out both ends. By the feed that they weren't genetically designed to exactly. tolerate. So... Getting that word out is something people can do. If you eat meat two or three times a week, cut it down to once a week. It doesn't, mm -hmm. It's not hard to do. Right. And we're not asking for people to change their entire lifestyles. We're just asking people to be more sensible in the context of all these 
obvious things that are happening to the planet. And the other thing people can do, which we're all starting to talk about, particularly after the election in November, is get involved on a grassroots level, wherever you are, with your local government, and show up at meetings, and go to those household conversations that are happening in your neighborhood, and talk about what your Congress people can do and what your state representatives can do to make steps toward a more sustainable attitude on all these levels about water, the use of electricity, about single-use plastic, about all these issues, because everybody can make a difference on a grassroots level. And everybody in the environmental world and in the progressive democratic political world is talking about really refocusing on the power of grassroots well, clearly. Political activity. Yeah, we have Look to. at some of the changes recently with the grassroots action around the country. Yeah. It's really affected the health care debate. It's affected a lot of different issues that are burning issues for a lot of people. And a lot of folks don't realize if you send in a letter, send in an f- email, uh, show up, that's a thousand to one lever. By that I mean they figure a thousand people must feel that way. If one person shows up, they reckon Particularly if you're showing up in a district you live in. Right. There's been a lot of study about the fact that emails to congressional people outside your district mean nothing, that phone calls to senators Mm -hmm. that aren't your senators are useless, which Mm -hmm. is why we're, again, doing everything we can to focus on local grassroots activity. Very important distinction. Because, you know, you think about the interesting thing about our map is you look at a map of the continental United States and a lot of the blue states are on the coasts. Right. So for Oceana, in the gloom of the aftermath of the election, this was a very positive thing to realize is we have influence in these coastal states that are blue because their local governments are generally blue. However, if you look at a map of congressional seats in California, there are a lot of seats, there are a lot of congressional districts in Southern California, particularly south of Los Angeles, where we could do some good work to make more committed allies about the issues that we care about. Right. And people in those neighborhoods in Southern California should be aware of that and get involved and start talking to the people that represent them. Very good point. No, and that's going to be a big focus for well, you all of us who do what we do. Are, that's a great pressure point. You really do put your money where your mouth is. You were out on the campaign trail. I think you went to Florida. I mean, for, for the national uh, election, of course. So you are one to really give us advice on that because you went to you went to Florida, right? This time we went to Florida. Yeah, we well. spent a week in Florida. <laughs> but you know, listen, that's why it's more important than ever. It's more important than ever because we get do, involved. You know, yeah. if, uh, I hope you're passionate about these matters, whatever side of the aisle you sit on. The environment is something. I I learned all this from my dad, who was a conservative Republican, and he was one of those conservatives that liked to conserve. Imagine that. We turned off the lights. We turned off the water. We saved tinfoil. We saved string. He was a son of Irish immigrants. He lived through the Great Depression. So he really cared about these things, and we need more people like that. We need people from both parties to get involved. Right. I I hate the fact that these issues have become politicized. Me too. It's terrible. How could clean oceans be a political issue. It's an absurdity. How could preserving wild seafood as a protein source for a billion people a day for 
the sustenance of 400 million jobs a day. 400 million jobs every day depend on the availability of wild seafood. How can that be a political issue? It shouldn't it, be. It's a human value. It's a humanitarian value. And, and even if your point of view, which is not mine, but if your point of view is that one side of our political equation supports and endorses and protects big business, even if that's your orientation, then protect the business exactly. of industrial fishing by conserving the resource and making sure it's available forever, for everyone. Another great example of that is protecting business ultimately when we force the auto industry to put the right kind of efficiencies into vehicles and seatbelts and airbags and those things. They did well. They were starting to be uh, a lot of their market share was taken away by foreign automobile manufacturers, and we got them back on the right track, in my opinion, by making more efficient cars. It was better for the auto business when they did what we hoped they would do, and they finally did. Absolutely. Are there any upcoming events for Oceana in terms of fundraising that you can just talk about that those who are, who are around can go and participate? Um, we do an annual event here in Los Angeles. Details to follow. Yeah, and Good. it's always a um, great We do an time. annual event in yeah. Laguna, and upcoming this summer will be the 10th annual Sea Change, Oceana Sea Change event in Laguna. That date has not been set yet. It's a great event. I've it's been a great event once. and yeah. a really important part of California, which is awakened in a very powerful way in the last decade. It used to be considered to be a place not very interested in our message and in our issues. That's changed completely in the last 10 years. It's an incredibly success, successful event. And when that date's set, I'll, I'll tell you more about those details too. Great. And we'll be there because you got me working now. I got a TV series thanks to you called yep. Future Man. Good. So I'm buying tickets and looking forward to that. Great. Hallelujah. Okay, so Earth Day, there will be marches across the country. My sister and I have this. Um, she says it's a science, science march, march, and I said it's an environmental march. And it's, we're both right. So of course you're both right. We will all go out. And what's more important, not going necessarily to Washington, but go locally. My sister lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She's going to protest, or she's going to show up, I guess, in protest, or what would it be called? A march. In solidarity. In solidarity. Huh? Yeah, I, did, I was refraining from that word, but nonetheless, it is appropriate. In Birmingham, Alabama. This, this idea of locality is everything. Everything. Right. We have a vice president, incredibly talented vice president, Oceana, named Jackie Savitz who came up with the wild idea that she and her small staff could organize the entire East Coast and stop completely offshore oil drilling off the eastern seaboard. People thought that was wild and unmanageable and not doable. And in a period of about 18 months, they organized over 100 local municipalities to create policies, local policies, from Florida all the way to North Carolina, wow. and oil drilling has been stopped off the eastern coast of the United States, almost completely as a function of that 100 municipality grassroots. Every single mayor, every single town hall meeting, they did it and it worked, and it was wildly effective. Wow. And it's a fabulous case history and what can be done on a local level by people who care. Now, we need that here, right? Because aren't they talking about wanting to drill off our off our coast? There's talk of it. I don't think that's no, going to happen in happen? California. Well, we're not too that. worried about that right no. now. Be again, because these coastal states tend to have right. such 
progressive agendas and progressive state governments that it will be very difficult for that to happen. But we're always vigilant and our eyes are always open and we're ready for everything. We're ready for anything. We were stunned by the election because those of us who have been doing this for a long time thought we were going to have the wind in our sails and be able to get mm-hmm. great stuff done and continue the momentum that we had worked so hard to achieve. And it was a shock to realize that we had to switch instantly to playing defense here in the United States, not so much elsewhere, but here in the United States. But who better to play defense and know how to do it legally and in terms of policy and grassroots organization Mm -hmm. than us and our allies and all the NGOs um, with whom we're allied. Right, NRDC, you guys, there's great organization, local groups like Heal the Bay and Santa Monica Baykeeper. and And we've always been underdog players. Right. right, right. So we know how to do this. It's exactly. kind of in our You're DNA. Right. Yeah. It's never been easy. Never. It's always so. been hard. And it attracts people who love that challenge. Right. Hollywood. I like a good challenge. <laughs> Look at what I got. You know. I love a good challenge. Listen, I've always said we're always better, uh, you know. When Obama was in power, in the office rather, I felt like a lot of the environmentalists sort of took a back. I mean, they, things continued to improve, but people got a little complacent. I thought they felt like, that, you know, daddy was in charge and he was going to handle it. I dream of those days. Oh, of course. Well, of course. But I know what you mean. Media-wise. I, it... I think this is going to be an incredibly successful time for NGO environmental fundraising because the present danger is so clear and obvious, which it hasn't been right. in a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And we intend to take advantage of Look all those resources. Look what happened with the ACLU and their fundraising efforts. Right. It's been extraordinary. Right. When those kinds of attacks were so clear and present for them. Absolutely. So what other organizations or affiliations do you support? Well, I support everyone making an effort to contribute to this work. And they all have different styles and different agendas. I'm, I've always been fascinated by the Greenpeace story. I have very good friends at NRDC. All of these organizations are doing important, valuable work. I wish we could all cooperate and work together <laughs> better than we can. And I think current circumstances are going to make us figure out how to be better partners with each other rather than fighting over donors and uh, mailing lists. Uh, but I'm, I'm so I'm hopeful about a better confederacy of environmental NGOs than has been the case in the past. Me too. Right. But there's work to be done there too. Yes. So someone who loves NRDC, come check out Oceana. And I hope Oceana people will spend time on NRDC's website and World Wildlife Fund and EDF and the other players out there who are all doing important work in different ways. And we were uh, recently in the same room uh, listening to Jane Goodall. That's right. That was amazing. That was She's such a hero of mine. I love that woman. Yeah. She's extraordinary. She said 30 years ago that she went from being a scientist to an activist. Her Roots and Shoots program is so important for kids. Hayden did it. Our daughter did it in preschool. It's a great program. I mean, the fact that she spends three hundred days a year on the road talking about this and being an advocate i don't think she really has a home as such no, anymore some place in england that it was her family home or something right. like that she but spends she, almost no time there and she's 82 and isn't it interesting <laughs> she's 82 and it's not like she has a private jet she's right. in airports flying coach checking her bags going through security at 83 300 yeah. days a year and i have to say 
She seems happier and clearer about her life than almost anybody I know. I know. Absolutely. And, finding time. and that's pretty much true of all the people I know who are devoted to this work as a full-time gig. And so what have I learned from this? I, I, I've gotten an enormous amount of joy out of it myself in, in a very selfish way. It makes me feel good doing this stuff. Me too. Uh, and when I talk to young people about coming on board in whatever way they can, I say, do it if only because it's going to make you feel better about your life. It's Do true. it for the most selfish reason you can think of that it's going to make well, you happier and incidentally have a positive effect on people around you and on the planet around you. But first and foremost, do something that's going to make you feel like a better more dimensional, more responsible human being on the planet. And here, I'm just going to give you a, l- a little story. Ed and I met at an environmental event, and uh, I say, if you want to meet someone, go, go to an event, get involved in something that you're passionate about, and you will meet like-minded people. We met at the Friends of the River That's event right. at uh, Santa Monica Airport there at the Barker Hangar, I so think. So it's a great dating tool. You see? So there you are. Rochelle, are you trying to hint at something? Are you dating again? Dating? I wouldn't hoping? be so foolish. Why would I do that? I've been there, done that. Yeah. Okay. And the corniest thing I'll say before I go, I can't get over, still, the comments of those astronauts when they first went up in space and they were far enough away to see this little blue dot. What clear image is there of the fact that it's one aquarium, it's one terrarium, it's one unit? indivisible there's no difference mm-hmm. between the air and the sea and the land and the animals and the and humans it's one very contained ecosystem and it's incredibly finely tuned and it's not that difficult to screw it up forever and that's what's on the, that's what's on the line now exactly are we going to try and preserve it or are we going to let it devolve into something uninhabitable for us Amen. there it is Amen. so eloquent glad Great to talk action. to you guys thank yep. you for doing this thank you thank for doing you. it pleasure Keith, thank you so much. It has been a real honor. Now, uh, we want to highlight some of your insights you shared with us. Number one, the ocean is life. And when it comes to using your Earth's resources, you don't have to change your entire lifestyle. Just be cautious, careful, and reasonable. Regulation isn't meant to choke industries. It's to protect them. Organize a system in your community to help everyone recycle responsibly. Get involved on a grassroots level with your local government. It's amazing what can happen when people who care decide to take action. And you should help because it'll make you feel good. And in this case, it's okay to be selfish. And you might just get a date out of it. Well, that's all for today. We hope you've been inspired as we are to take action, help our oceans, and make a difference. Do a little, do a lot. Just do something today and tell us what you did. Thank you to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. This podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye.